0: righty, If you are out in the foyer, please make your way inside. We're about to get started here. Give 10 seconds and then we'll pray. Nine, eight, seven. <laughs> no, great. Now I lost count. <laughs> Alright, let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We are so thankful for tonight. We're so thankful for the the word that you have left for us. And we pray that as we study your word by looking at your word, that you would help us to treasure it even more. Help us to recognize what an incredible gift that it is and to to read it and to to hunger for it and to realize that in so doing, we are getting to know you more. Guide us in our thoughts and in our attitudes and our actions. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the Bible truly is a gift from God. If there is one main theme that we can walk away with tonight, it's that the Bible is over us. We are not over the Bible, right? Bible is over us. We're not over the Bible. As we learned last week, we didn't decide which books were part of the Bible, we didn't create the canon of Scripture. God decided that. He is the one that inspired the books that belonged in the canon. We're going to learn this week that we didn't decide that the Bible is authoritative. All we did was acknowledge the authority that it has on its own. We also are going to learn that, that we didn't decide that the, the Bible is worthy to be believed. God is the one who gives us the faith to believe and to understand the Bible. And we're also going to learn that because God is the one who is revealing, or has revealed, rather, nothing is to be added to the Bible. Let's take a look at those three concepts one at a time. In your handout, you'll notice first, number one, the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. The authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. I also put there a quote in the Confession from Chapter 1, Paragraph 4. Notice the Confession puts it this way. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So to paraphrase it, the reason why the scriptures have authority, the reason why the scriptures should thus be believed has nothing to do with whether a person like the Pope or as Robert Briggs would say, the Pope says it should be believed, right? It has nothing to do with whether a person says it should be believed. It has nothing to do with whether the church says that it should be believed. It depends completely on God is truth itself he is the ultimate author of the scriptures and so the bible should be received for no other reason than it's his very word that's why we receive the bible that's why we consider it authoritative thinking back to last week's conversation about canon a book doesn't belong in the bible because the church decided it belonged in the bible all the church did was they, they read the book and they recognized God's voice in it. They, they saw that it was a divinely inspired book and they said, yes, that's part of the canon of scripture. And similarly, the Bible isn't authoritative because the church has decided it's authoritative. That's not the reason why it's authoritative. It's authoritative because it's from God himself who possesses all authority in the universe. So let's see what the scriptures say on this subject. First, uh, let's consider once again 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We looked at this passage before, and just remember that the context is Peter's talking about the transfiguration, the incredible experience that when he saw Christ in, in, in an amazing, glorious way in the transfiguration. But rather than appeal to his experience... And say, well, I saw Jesus this way. He appeals even more strongly to the scriptures than that experience. And he writes this in in 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they had happened. The Old Testament prophecies were happening. The scriptures were being confirmed in Christ. And the scriptures were a light shining in a dark place worthy of our attention. And remember also that Peter says that that no prophecy of scriptures, not, not one verse in the scriptures, came ultimately from man. Yes, men wrote the Bible, but men spoke and wrote from God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the logical conclusion of that is that the Bible is authoritative on its own. The Bible isn't authoritative because the prophet said, that the bible is authoritative. The bible is authoritative simply because it's God's very word. Let's look next very quickly at 2 Timothy 3:16. 2 Timothy 3:16. I say quickly because we've already looked at this verse quite a bit before. In 2 Timothy 3:16, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Same idea here, same idea. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God and therefore, it's authoritative in and of itself. It's not authoritative because Paul said that it's authoritative, it's authoritative because it's breathed out by God. That's it, that's why it carries authority. So we've seen a couple passages we've already looked at before. Here's one we haven't yet. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul, after spending time commending his ministry to the Thessalonians, he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in you believers now in this case paul is is narrowly talking about the gospel that he had come and preached to the Thessalonians the gospel of Jesus Christ even though there it was delivered by mouth was not simply the word of the apostles but it was the very word of God And Paul was grateful to God that that's exactly how the Thessalonians received it when they brought the gospel to Thessalonica. They didn't receive it merely as the word of men, but they received it, this verse says, as what it really is, the word of God. As what it really is, the word of God. Notice, by the way, that, that the word of God was, at the end of the verse, it says, at work in the believers, at work. That's what the word of God does. The word of God is at work in his people. The word of God transforms people like no other word does. So what we're seeing in this verse is that the word of God should be taken differently than the word of men. It should be received differently than the word of men. In this particular context, again, it's talking about the gospel as was being authoritatively proclaimed by the apostles of jesus christ and surely that that should be received differently than just mere words of men the gospel is not self-help advice right the gospel is not man's commentary on the word of god the gospel is the very word of god itself it is god's message directly from himself to humanity and that is how thus the gospel should be received And even though Paul is specifically referring to the gospel in this passage, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we can certainly take that principle as it applies to the gospel and apply it to all of scripture. Because we've already established in previous studies that the Bible is God's very word. The Bible is God's very word. Now to state the obvious, because it's God's very word, it should be received differently from the word of men. It should be received differently. and For example, we're, we're reading what the 1689 writers have written. To be more accurate, what the Westminster writers have written that the 1689 writers have copied. But we're reading what they've written, and so far, we've received what they've said as true. We've said amen. We agree. We agree with that. And so, therefore, we highly respect and we affirm everything that we've read so far. But we need to recognize the difference between the word of men and the word of God when it comes to the 1689 any authority that that confession has is because we look at it and we see that it's in line with the word of God it's in line with the word of God the scriptures on the other hand they're authoritative in and of themselves because it's God's own word that's the difference between God's word and the word of men the scriptures are authoritative in and of themselves Let's look at one more verse before we move on from this topic. 1 John 5.9. 1 John 5.9. In writing about the testimony concerning the Son of God, John writes this in 1 John 5.9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing an argument from the lesser to the greater. So we receive the testimony of men, we do. In a court case, witnesses are critical. Having witness testimonies are critical. In this day and age, we look at the testimonies of men all the time. We go and look at the ratings of hotels to see if the place that we're considering staying at is completely gross, right? Uh, we, we look at reviews of restaurants or products And we take people at their word. Those are their testimonials. It's not wrong to do those things. And if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to take the testimony of men, how much more should we receive the testimony of God? It's a greater testimony, Paul writes. Or John, I'm sorry. John writes. It's a greater testimony. God has spoken to us through the gospel about his son it's a greater testimony and more specifically look at verses 11 and 12 verses 11 and 12 of 1st John 5 this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of God does not have life that's the testimony of God and by the way we share that testimony of God with you tonight God has spoken, and he says to you that the eternal life that he gives is in his Son. It's in his Son. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you have forgiveness of your sins and you have eternal life. If you don't trust in Jesus Christ, then you don't. So in the name of God who has spoken this, put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. So because the gospel is a testimony of God, it should be taken differently. It should be received differently. The message of his son is authoritative. Again, not because it was affirmed by the apostles, not because the church has recognized it's authoritative. It's simply authoritative because it's directly from God himself. So we saw from these passages in the first part of our study tonight that that the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. And we do, in fact, declare that the Bible is authoritative. That's part of our message. I do tell you that the Bible is authoritative, but it's not authoritative because I have declared it to you. It is authoritative because it's God's word. That's it. He is all-knowing, he is all-wise, and he cannot lie. Therefore, everything that he says is true. Everything that he says is authoritative. So before we move on, We always ask the question, so what? What does this mean for our everyday life? And so with that, let's think about three quick points of application to this idea that the Bible is authoritative for no other reason than it's God's word or that the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. Three quick points of application. Number one, in light of this reality, sit under the word of God humbly. Sit under the word of God humbly. The words that we have in scripture, the ones that I've been reading to you tonight, and every word in the Bible are not just words about God, though they are that. The words in the Bible are not merely a record of his works and his wonders throughout history, though they are that as well. They're not merely a guide for how to live, though they are that for sure. Every word of scripture are God's very words and they carry the authority of the one who spoke them. So sit humbly under the word of God. And secondly, speak authoritatively from the word of God. Speak authoritatively from the word of God. Whether you're preaching or or teaching or discipling or counseling from the word of God, recognize that you are doing so with the authority of God, with the authority of God. You are acting as a messenger from God himself. Inasmuch as you're being faithful to the text, you are handling God's word with authority. It's not an authority that comes from you. It's an authority that comes from the author of the word itself. You're bearing a message from the king. So speak authoritatively from the word of God. And third, speak confidently from the word of God. Speak confidently. You don't need to defend the word of God. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. End quote. Sounded probably way better in an English accent. So if people receive the word of God that you are declaring to them, it's because the spirit is working in them. And they're recognized that it's from him because the spirit is working in them. And if they deny the word of God, that's not on you. They are rejecting God's message itself. So all you have to do is be the confident messenger of God's word. You worry a lot about, like, sharing the gospel. I'm worried about questions they may have, things they might say. Don't worry about that. Just declare the word of God, and God will do the work in that. All right? So, the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. Next, let's consider our second point. Faith in the Bible comes from no one but God himself. Faith in the Bible comes from no one but God himself. Here's a paragraph 5 of the first chapter of our confession says. Quite a long quote, but a good one. We read this. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof our arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts so to put it in our own words by being among God's people like tonight for example we we might grow in in a higher reverence of the bible like for example when we when we come together for our worship on the lord's day when we're expect, expected to stand when it's being read or or when we traditionally respond thanks be to god in response to this is the word of the lord or Or when the preachers and the teachers of the church, you can tell that they purposely hold the scriptures to high esteem, and and when we make time every Sunday afternoon to just sit there and read several chapters aloud, and and when we're exhorted to take the word of God seriously, then we can grow in our reverence for the word of God. We can grow. From teaching, we we can recognize just how heavenly the Bible is, and and how effective the doctrines of the Bible are. We can tell how majestic the Bible is, and how incredibly consistent it is, how, how uniform it is. We have 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents over, over millennia, and they're all telling the same story of the snake crusher to come. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's uniform. We can see how there is no other book that is anywhere near as excellent as it is, anywhere as perfect as it is. And these are awesome arguments that support that it is, in fact, the word of God. That being said, our our fully believing and being assured that the Bible is infallible truth and that its authoritative uh, word, that it's rather God's authoritative word, comes from God the Holy Spirit bearing witness in our hearts. In other words, ultimately, we believe the Bible because the Holy Spirit causes us to believe. That's not going to convince an unbeliever in an argument, by the way. It just won't. So when someone asks me, how do I know that the Bible is the word of God? Really, my answer is, I just know. I just know. There is no evidence that would prove that it's God's word to an unbeliever. Trust me, I, I sat for a while talking to a young man who, was, who was thought he might be a believer for a moment but had all of these doubts and I gave all these arguments about the word of God, how beautiful it is. Walked him through the whole storyline of the Bible and look, look how uniform that is. He's not convinced by that. He's not convinced by it. So there's nothing that can prove to an unbeliever externally that it's God's word. There's also no evidence that it can, he also wasn't able to present evidence to disprove that it's God's word. I know that the Bible is God's word because I just know. The Holy Spirit bears witness to me that it is. Now, we know that other religions make the same argument, like like Mormonism, right? The, the burning in the bosom. The effect of the breakfast burrito later in the day, right? The burning of the bosom. But theirs is a false feeling confirming for them false scriptures. And by the way, like I said before, where there is no evidence that disproves that the Bible is the word of God. There is plenty of evidence that disproves that the Book of Mormon is the word of God. It just, there is no proof of it at all. There is no archaeological evidence at all that confirms the, the claims that it makes in the Book of Mormon. And they even acknowledge that. They acknowledge that. They just say that we haven't found any yet. Okay. That's, how, that's the opposite of how the Bible is. Not only is the Bible confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit, but all the evidence also points to the reality of the Bible as well. So just because Mormons and and others have this counterfeit assurance from the inside, that doesn't make it false about the Bible. The reality is that the Christian believes the Bible ultimately because God gives him the faith to believe it. Let's see this in the scriptures. That's a big claim. Let's look at uh, John 16... 13 through 14, John 16, 13 through 14. Jesus, after uh, promising to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he says in this passage in John 16, 13 through 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So notice, first of all, that that the Holy Spirit who lives in all believers is called there in verse 13, the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. He's not a spirit of falsehood or confusion, but he is the spirit of truth. Jesus promises his disciples that he, the Holy Spirit, would guide them into all the truth. Now mind you, this comment is right after what Jesus said in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So what verse 13 seems to be saying is, the Holy Spirit is going to fill in all those blanks uh, for what you are not able to yet bear. And that's a gift to us as well, because imagine if, they were just dependent on their memory from three years, right? I, I don't remember what percentage I remember from the seminary, but it's not high, right? So thank God that, the, that God, the Holy Spirit, reminds them of everything that, he, that Jesus taught them and also what they were not even able to yet bear to hear at the time. Verse 13 continues by saying, For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, remember that the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Son and just as much God as the Father. There's only one God. We don't have three gods. The three persons in the Trinity are one in essence. But when God works in history, the three persons of the Trinity do different things together, but they do different things. So, for example, the Father sent the Son the son died on the cross for us and the holy spirit gives people new life to believe that so in this context the holy spirit is not the one creating the message he's simply the one delivering it and he's delivering it from christ and the message that the holy spirit would declare is the verse says the things that were to come things that were to come not talking about eschatology It's talking about the truth that Christ had not yet taught them, but that they would need. He would teach them through the Holy Spirit's testimony later on. In verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit would, would speak what Christ gives him to speak, and in doing that, the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Now, though the authors of our confession cite that verse, what it seems like to me is that this particular promise is specifically for the disciples, who would later be called the apostles. And the way that, that he fulfilled this promise is by giving them the authoritative and infallible truth that would be called in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching, and that which we now have inscripturated in the New Testament. So in other words, the Holy Spirit worked in the apostles in a different way than he does with us they were able to speak on behalf of christ they were able to command people on behalf of christ in a way that was an author was authoritative that was inerrant and infallible just as the old testament scriptures the apostles were able to do that because christ had sent them for that purpose he gave them everything that they needed to preach to be the foundation of the church so with that said We can say this, that the Holy Spirit who dwells in and is working in us is the same Holy Spirit who dwelled in and worked in the apostles. He is the same God. He is the same Holy Spirit. And while he may work differently in us, one thing is for certain. He is the Spirit of truth. And being the Spirit of truth, he is guiding us into all truth. And in us, he glorifies Christ through what he gave, uh, uh, through what Christ gave to him, the Holy Spirit, to speak to the apostles. We recognize the truth of God's word because God, the Holy Spirit of truth, guides us. So now let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. This one here is unquestionably about all believers. So here, Paul, Paul is making the argument that the reason why people in Corinth believed was that the Holy Spirit revealed the truth of it to them. That's why they believed, because the Holy Spirit revealed the truth of it to them. So he writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 12. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. All of that is in contrast to these religious leaders who who promoted Christ being crucified. They were, they were the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. In verse 8, we see this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the religious leaders did understand the scriptures correctly, and therefore they recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, there, there's no way they would have crucified him. That's the point he's making. However, they did not understand the scriptures. So in contrast to them, in verse 10, it says that God revealed these things to us through the Spirit. On what grounds could the Spirit reveal such things? Well, it's on the grounds that the Holy Spirit knows everything that God knows. He knows everything that God knows because He is God Himself. The second half of verse 10, look. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. And then in verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In this analogy, Paul points out that you can't separate thoughts from your spirit. Because when your body dies, that's going to go in the grave, and your thoughts are going to go with your soul, to heaven, with Christ. And and in the same way that you can't separate the, the spirit from thoughts, you can't separate the thoughts of God from the spirit of God. That's what he's saying. Now verse 12 here is key to our discussion. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us is not the world's spirit giving us the thinking of the world. No. The Spirit who dwells in us is the Spirit who is from God. Now what does that accomplish? Look at the last part of verse 12. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, because He is working in us, we can understand the things of God. That's why we can understand the things of God. Later, verse 14, we'll say this. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God, or the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's not going to accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's not going to accept the Gospel, not going to accept the Scriptures. To the natural person, The scriptures are folly they think it's a fairy tale they think it's a book of myths right and besides being folly the the natural man can't even understand the scriptures because they are spiritually discerned and the opposite of this verse is true so if we flip this verse the spiritual person that is the person who has the holy spirit does accept the things of the spirit of god because they are the wisdom of God to him. He is able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned and he has the Holy Spirit, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. So the reason that we accept the scriptures as true is that the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual discernment and understanding that we need to accept it. The acceptance of the scriptures comes from God himself comes from no one but God himself the holy spirit working in us let's look at one more passage on this particular subject first john chapter 2 first john 2 in warning the church against antichrists and pointing out that there are some who have left the church proving that they were never part of the church john writes this in first john 2 verse 20 and 27 Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And then verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, anoint anointing. And unction, these are, <laughs> I remember seeing this meme where it was like Google Translate, and on one side it was saying, I just pray for anointing and unction, and on the translation it said, I have no idea what I'm saying anymore. Right? People just use these words, they just repeat things, They pray for anointing and unction. But anointment, anointment in the Old Testament was when someone would smear or rub oil onto someone, which was a visual representation of ceremonially conferring a holy office on somebody so for example high priests were anointed with oil they would have oil smeared on them when they were being handed that office same thing was done with kings like when uh, samuel anointed david king so john uses this familiar picture of anointing to say that we have been anointed by the holy one the holy one the Holy One here is probably talking about, in particular, Christ, and because even the demons called him the Holy One of God. And instead of anointing us with oil, Christ has anointed us with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 27. It says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you. The Holy Spirit actually abides and dwells in each and every one of us. So because we have been given the Holy Spirit, who was sent from the Father and the Son, we all have knowledge. As opposed to those who have left us because they are not of us, we have knowledge. We, verse 21 says, know the truth. Why do we know the truth? Because we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Second part of verse 27, it says, And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Yes, sir. Is that in reference to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31? Right? I, would, I would say so, yes, absolutely. It's a good question. He said this is in reference to the New Covenant in Jeremiah, absolutely. Uh, because this is not to say that we know everything and that we don't need to be taught. How do we know that this is not saying that we know everything and we don't need to be taught? What do you think? Yeah, he's, he's teaching them that, <laughs> right? Or, or this whole letter would be useless. Why would we need 1 John if we don't need to be taught? Why would God give the church shepherds and teachers? But what it is saying is that we know truth. We know truth. We have, from the promises of the new covenant, we have God's law written on our hearts. We understand the things that are freely given to us by God. So we don't rely on external teachers We rely on the one who is working in us. Yes, we do need teachers. That's why God gives the church teachers. We need Bible studies like tonight. But ultimately, if you're a believer here tonight, uh, it's not me teaching you, not ultimately. It's the Holy Spirit of God teaching you through the Word of God that is just being preached through me, all right? The last half of verse 27 implies that this is an ongoing process Last half of verse 27. As his anointing teaches you about everything. The Holy Spirit hasn't taught us everything, but he teaches us everything. And since he is true and he is no lie, just as he has taught us, we are to abide in him. Probably referring to Christ, abiding in Christ, the one who anointed us with the Holy Spirit. So again, we believe the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit has given us the knowledge that the Scriptures are true. We know the Scriptures are true because the Holy Spirit abides in us. So, although God uses these other means that help us to, uh, to quash doubts and to be able to see the excellencies of the Scriptures, ultimately, we believe the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit in us helps us to believe and know. And that's what sets us apart from an unbeliever reading the scriptures. Can an unbeliever read the Bible? Of course. An unbeliever can know the scriptures well enough to teach a real-life class called The Bible as a Work of Literature at UNLV. It exists, or at least it existed. One of the pastors at Redeemer, they're like, well, that's, that's cool. I'm going to take that as one of my electives. And he says that it was garbage. You, couldn't, you can guess that it would be, right? Because you can study the Bible and you can teach it and truly not understand anything about it if you don't have the Holy Spirit. When we read the Word, we receive it as the wisdom of God because the Holy Spirit has given us that understanding of it. So in light of that, before we move on to our third point, let's apply that to ourselves with just two quick applications. First, thank God for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank God for giving us the Holy Spirit. If God did not send the Spirit to us, then we'd just be like the rest of the world, not understanding the gospel, not accepting the gospel, rejecting the scriptures, and you and me, we would all be on our hell-bound race still. But because the Holy Spirit gave us new life and gave us new understanding, we see the truth of the gospel and of the scriptures that contain it. So thank God. For the Holy Spirit's dwelling in us. And then secondly, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Part of Paul's argument in First Corinthians 2 was to humble the Corinthian believers. They had all this, they had these issues in the church of, well, I'm of Paul, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos, and some were so holy, because I was actually, I'm of Christ, right? So they had these divisions in the church. So he's writing them. To humble them right at the very outset of the letter. In Corinth, they were a people who they were known for being prideful about knowledge, about rhetoric, about wisdom. They prided themselves in that. And it was for that reason that Paul purposely went into Corinth, preaching a basic gospel of Christ and Him crucified that would be received by most as foolishness. And despite such a base and foolish gospel, people believed and the reason he did that was that so no one could boast no one could say ah yes paul made a great argument and i believed i had i had the wisdom to believe his excellent argument no it was so that no one could boast it was clear that the only reason they believed was because of the holy spirit's work in them and if you're a believer in jesus christ that is true for you also you believe the scriptures Not because you're particularly smart or spiritually receptive, but because the Spirit of God confirms them to you. You might have a more accurate theology. You might be more reformed than some of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not because you've matured yourself. It's because the Holy Spirit has taught you. So don't be prideful. Don't be impatient either. Acknowledge that all the knowledge and all understanding are given by the Holy Spirit. Thank God for giving that to you and pray that he would do it for others with all patience. So, the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God himself. And faith in the Bible comes from no one but God himself. Next, thirdly, let's see that nothing is to be added to the Bible. Nothing is to be added to the Bible. Notice there, paragraph six of chapter one of our confession, it says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. So everything that God has revealed about what glorifies him, about salvation, about faith and life, you can either see explicitly in the Bible or you can see implied in the Bible. So everything about those topics is either explicitly said or implied in the Bible. And nothing is to be added to the Bible, neither by some new revelation of the Spirit nor by the traditions of men. And the authors of the Confession here cite, first of all, 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, you probably don't need to turn there anymore at this point. We have seen this passage a few times already in our study. So let's just draw from what we learned from it logically. If the scriptures make the man of God complete, equipped for every good work, then why would anything need to be added to the scriptures? If the Bible as it exists has everything that the man of God needs, why would anything need to be added to the scriptures? I couldn't find who originally said this quote. Maybe you know it. But it's been said that basically any prophecies that contradict the scriptures are false and any prophecies that confirm the scriptures are unnecessary. The scriptures are sufficient. There is no need for them to be added to. Could the same thing have been said about the Old Testament? No. How do No, because the story wasn't over. The snake crusher was promised But at the end of the Old Testament, it's just a cliffhanger. He hadn't arrived. And it was this 400 year period of silence where everyone acknowledged there are no new scriptures being written in this 400 year period. Where was he? So the Old Testament scriptures were not the complete revelation of God. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And now God's special revelation for his people is complete. We have all that we need to glorify Him. We have all we need to live for Him until He returns. Let's take a look at another passage that supports this concept. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Paul in Galatians 1, let me talk about it for a bit. Um, He's introducing his polemic against the Judaizers what's a polemic does anyone know what how to define what polemic is it's basically like an argument against a position uh, an attack against a position so he's writing a polemic against Judaizers and these are people who claimed that you need to be Jewish before you can become Christian that's what they're that's what they're teaching and he called this in verse 6 a different gospel Now, he quickly clarifies, there is really no other gospel, but there are those who would distort the gospel of Christ and therefore make a different gospel. It's very interesting that the Judaizers probably would have affirmed that you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. They probably would have affirmed you need to trust in Jesus. But then they added another requirement to salvation, circumcision, and just becoming Jewish in general. Adding requirements to salvation is essentially what Roman Catholics have done. They have added, according to church tradition, that there are some sins called mortal sins that they can cause you to go to hell if you don't repent of mortal sins. There are other sins that they they say called venial sins that, that won't send you to hell, but you still need to pay for those sins either here or in purgatory. They say that you can continue to receive forgiveness of your sins here on earth, either by baptism, which cleanses you of all sin according to them, or by penance, by, by somehow paying for your sins, usually by saying so many Hail Marys or Our Fathers. They say that you can, uh, that, that in order for somebody to actually be truly or formally forgiven, that a priest actually needs to give that sinner absolution. And they say that in order for somebody to get out of purgatory sooner, then prayers need to be made for the dead, and also indulgences can be made. In other words, there's this concept that you go to this some sort of jail before heaven where you're being cleansed of your previous sins, but you can actually get time off your of your sentence either by appeal and prayer or by good behavior you can get a lesser sentence. Or, prior to the Reformation, they were also accepting money for indulgences. Friends, if just saying that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved is a different gospel, surely all of that is a different gospel as well. And this is what Paul writes about such gospels in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yet he recognized that even with that title, he had no right to amend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Neither did an angel. It is utterly ironic that the one who told Joseph Smith that the Christian church had the gospel all wrong was an angel. If even an angel brings a different gospel, let him be accursed. I actually do believe that Joseph Smith saw an angel. It was just an angel from the wrong team. If an apostle couldn't do it, If an angel couldn't do it, surely no one could do it. Surely anyone who tried to amend the gospel would be accursed. I was in a conversation the other day with a Roman Catholic, and uh, we were talking about praying to Mary, praying to other Christians in heaven, and I told him to defend his position on praying to Mary and the saints from Scripture. And he said, "That's that's what's wrong with you Protestants. That's what's wrong with us Protestants. So we only look at the scriptures. We don't, we don't look at the traditions of the church. We only look at the scriptures and we don't listen to the pronouncements of the Pope as he was supposedly being led by the Holy Spirit. And to that we say, mea culpa. Yes, we are guilty of saying sola scriptura. We are guilty of condemning anything that contradicts the gospel that we have received. That's why the confession specifically calls out new revelation of the spirit and traditions of men. That's what the Roman Catholic Church has depended on throughout its history to defend its unbiblical practices. They don't point to the scriptures. They point to tradition. They point to the church speaking from the the chair of the Pope. No, the scriptures are the word of God, period. There is nothing that should be added to the scriptures. We don't have this ever-growing library of new revelation because we have been given everything that we need. That's actually an, ar- an argument for cessationism as well. If, if you received a direct message from God, why would you not add pages to your Bible to write that down? Why would such a prophecy be any less authoritative than Genesis or Revelation? No, there is no ongoing prophecy because all that God intended to speak has been spoken. The idea that there is ongoing prophecy or that, that God speaks through the seed of the Pope or that the traditions of the church are authoritative, all of that is born out of the sentiment that God hasn't given us all that we need yet. He hasn't revealed enough to us. We want more revelation. And honestly, that's just spiritually greedy. We have all that we need. We don't need anything but the Scriptures to do every good work that is required of us. We don't need any amendments to the Gospel, and anyone who makes amendments to the Gospel is accursed. And by the way, any time that anything has been added to the Bible, whether it's deciding that the Apocrypha is Scripture, or adding the Book of Mormon, or the Pope's declarations, have only served to make the gospel worse, not improve it. I mean, surely you have to be able to see that. Like, the gospel, as it's given in the Bible, is free grace, given by God, obtained through faith alone, in Christ alone. These other gospels, these different gospels, make it so that you have to earn salvation. Whether it's by trying as hard as you can and letting God do the rest, as the Mormons say, or by Paying for your sins in some sort of pre heaven waiting room of torment, God has given us a pure and beautiful gospel. Anything else just makes it worse and damnable. So, in short, nothing is to be added to the Bible. It is God's complete revelation for his people. In light of that, here are two applications for us. First, search the scriptures, search the scriptures. Everything that God wants you to know with regard to being one of his people, everything God wants you to know about himself, apart from general revelation, is located in the scriptures. And there are plenty of scriptures to search. The one who knows his Bible well knows God's well, knows God well. The one who knows his Bible well knows God well, and knows how to live for him well. And then, second, reject anything that suggests that it's that there's additional revelation if people knew their bibles well they would have never received doctrines like purgatory and indulgences if people knew their bibles well they would have never received another testament of jesus christ called the book of mormon there are going to be antichrists between now and the end and if anyone claims to have special revelation outside of the scriptures reject them, and call them to trust in Jesus Christ. So tonight, we learn that the authority of the Bible comes from no one but God alone, that faith in the Bible also comes from no one but God alone, and that nothing is to be added to the Bible. How awesome is the word of God and the one who has spoken it. Amen? We got a few minutes for questions or comments. Questions you have. Pastor Corey. Reject anything that suggests its additional revelation. You got it. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. First application of point two, let's see here. There it is. Thank God for giving us the Holy Spirit. Pastor Corey. So, in your study, did you come across anything that talked about what Jesus believed about the scriptures? Did I come across anything about what Jesus believed about the script? Not, not like in this particular study, um, but certainly, to your to your question, what did Jesus believe about the scriptures? Is that? He treated them as the authoritative word of God. He would just, as it is written, bloop. And then there was no need to argue, argue any further than that. It's like, this is the word, period. Um, is there something, what else, anything else you were getting at with that question? No, just wondering if you came across anything. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, yeah. He had, the Old Testament that we have now is the same Old Testament that they had then, and he affirms the Old Testament. And all the quotes of the Old Testament uh all the old testament scriptures are quoted in the new testament affirming them yeah when you say that the um, old testament complete because of course we had to add the new testament to get the whole um, gospel of salvation do you mean like uh, the old testament wasn't sufficient to save souls or no I mean, that's a great question that's a r- important question she's asking if by saying that the old testament was complete am i saying that the old testament wasn't sufficient to save souls no, I'm not saying that. That's a really important question. Uh, the people who only had the Old Testament, who believed, in, who believed in this promise of this snake crusher, of this Messiah, who trusted in Yahweh, they were saved the same way that we are. It was just that they believed only up to as much as they were was revealed to them. I was saying uh, it's incomplete because there was still the revelation of Jesus Christ that was coming. Great question. Important question. Yeah, Brother Cedric. Like, Galatians 3 8, like Abraham believed the gospel. Mm hmm. Like, is that kind of just like that whole thing where they had, they had enough for something? Like, I mean, Absolutely. You're about the infinite, holy, eternal God. Right. None of us have all of anything. Right. I mean, the scripture is sufficient. I'm not saying the scripture is not sufficient. I'm still saying the scripture is defining infinite. Mm hmm. Right. Still on some level, Amen. Yeah, uh, Yeah. absolutely. Um, well now we have the complete revelation of yes. who the Messiah is. But throughout history, they didn't. Uh, Adam and Eve were promised this, someone who would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And to them, that was the gospel. Um, matter of fact, when Seth, not Seth, Abel died, I mean, that would cause some concern because now you had a situation where one of your sons was murdered and your other son was the murderer. So when Seth is born, she says, thank God, she's given me a man. She's given me another seed. So shes you can kind of see that she's believing this promise of the seed of the woman that God would use. And then this story, this snake crusher just continues to be revealed in greater measures, whether it's uh, Moses talking about a prophet greater than I who will come, or if it's... Um, um abraham being promised that that all of the nations be blessed through him or that the the scepter would never depart from david's throne you get these and then of course isaiah talking about the servant of the lord it's just in greater measures the messiah is being revealed but god's people throughout history has always believed in this snake crusher from genesis 3 and that's how they were saved just like we are amen all right let's pray Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we we acknowledge and and confess before you that we do often take it for granted that in our weakness, uh, though we know that we should uh, take it in more, whether it's by reading or listening to it or hearing it taught, in our flesh we're weak, and in our flesh we would rather binge watch a television show. Uh, God, help us, please. We pray that you would give us an insatiable appetite for your word. And help, help us to sit under its authority because you're the one who has spoken it. And we pray, Father, that because we can't love it and because we can't believe it, apart from your Holy Spirit working in us, we pray that you would, through him, in great measure, give us a faith in this word. And help us, Father, also to rely completely on it, knowing that it is your full revelation to us. God, we pray that in all of these things that you would keep us humble, Uh, We know that we know these things because that you revealed them to us. We are at this church because you've revealed certain doctrines to us and we cannot take credit for that. We, We are tempted to boast, but we cannot. Help us, Father, to be humble and to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.